Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and I'm going to have to edit my intro a little bit because I I played the intro live and uh, screwed up my entry. <laughs> but um, we have uh, today uh, a guest that, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you may already be familiar with him. Uh, it is... Over in Scotland, we have Bibleridian. Good evening. Yeah. And uh, we're just going to talk, we're just going to chat a little bit about conlanging and, and about uh, what you have sort of built on on your YouTube channel and, uh, and things. And, and um, uh, how about actually... For us to start, how about you tell me a little bit about how you got into conlanging in the first place, and like what what um, what was the impetus for that, and what also got you into putting your conlanging stuff on YouTube? Sure. Um, so um, I first got into conlanging uh, would have been about ten years ago at this point. Um, it's a little bit scary to think about, uh, but I would have been in university, and um, I was, um, as I recall, it just sort of spun out of um, playing D&D, actually, with just my flatmates, and we just had a game going, and uh, at the same time, I had also, I can't remember why, but I had just resolved to actually read The Silmarillion that year, because... I'd always been a big mm -hmm. fan of Tolkien stuff, but I'd never actually sat down and read through the Silmarillion properly. And just the main thing that I got out of it was that there was just something about the way that Tolkien used Elvish in the story. Just It was very clear that it wasn't just gibberish that was just hastily put together. There was clearly like um, a systematicity to it in the way that if you look at the different names of the characters and places there was some there were certain like recurring derivational elements and certain bits that would show up in various different compounds and it just struck me that it was like a really nice cohesive way of fleshing out the world and so I thought to myself maybe I could try doing something similar for this game that I'm running and um, yeah I just kind of got carried away a little bit after that. Um, and it really... That's basically how I got involved in conlanging, and then my interest just sort of carried me through the rest of it. And as for the YouTube aspect of it, um, I can't even really remember specifically when or why I got the idea to make a channel, but it was, it was never my intention to amass an audience, I guess. It was just something to do as a hobby. Um, and I'm trying to remember the order in which things happened, but the the thing that I can remember is that at various points I had seen um, David Peterson. Uh, he, he had, People had asked him the question, can you record your process? Can you show us your process behind 
you know, how you make these languages. And uh, this was long before Langtime Studio was ever a thing. So the answer right. was pretty right. much always no, um, just because of both NDAs and just the, you know, it's a matter of how much free time he had to do stuff like that. It would just be extra work on top of what he was already doing. So it's completely understandable that he couldn't. But just I had this lingering thought of like, oh, maybe I could do something like that. And then one summer morning, for no reason at all, I just woke up and the very first thought that I had that day was, yeah, I should do that. And so I just went into the living room and just made a simple Conlang tutorial series. And that was kind of that. And then that just sort of picked up traction. And then, and then for no reason that has ever been explained to me, I made a, a, a sort of follow-up video about the first conlang that I ever made and why it was so terrible. And for some reason, YouTube just decided that everyone in the world needed to see that video, and it started, just the algorithm picked it up, and it, before that video, I had maybe 200 subscribers, I think, something like that, and then overnight, as soon as I posted that video, I got 1,000 plus in one go. Um, and after that, I saw clearly I was getting some traction, so I decided to just sort of keep doing it, and yeah, I, I'm not broke yet. How far, how far in was it that that happened, that the, that particular video got, went viral for whatever How reason? far into the YouTube thing? Yeah, yeah. Um... So I would have first made the channel at some point in 20, 2016, I want to say. And mm -hmm. that video, ooh, I think it must have been 2018. So a couple of years of just relative anonymity and then just the luck of the algorithm, that thing exploded for some reason. That's, that's, that's really, uh, fortunate. That's very interesting. It's, and now you have over a hundred thousand subscribers, something like that. I can't remember the exact number, but 125, 130,000, something like that. That's, that's incredible. That's, that's just, um, it's, it's really surprising, you know, to see that from, you know, you know, what I know of the Conlang community before, which has always been kind of small and um, close-knit, but it seems like you're drawing in a lot of people, at least watching your stuff. I mean, so it's... it's To be fair, I have to say that the... Because I have um, Conlang in content, but I also have speculative biology content, where I have this series where I'm making an alien planet. And the audience for that series mm -hmm. vastly outnumbers the audience for conlanging. But even then, the the conlanging side of things is not insignificant, I don't think. I'm still getting, you know, yeah. 10,000 plus views typically on a conlang related video. So there's definitely an, a, a sizable uh, conlanging uh, community presence in <laughs> my audience. Uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so so you have the 
the alien biology stuff. You have all kinds of world building stuff, and you have the the conlanging. It started with uploading conlanging videos. Yeah, it? it was or, originally um, exclusively uh, conlang related stuff, um, and then I offhandedly mentioned in a Q and A video that um, I did biology at university, and that you know. I could maybe talk about that if people wanted me to branch out a bit. And so I got some people saying, yes, you should do that. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give that a go and see if it works. And it has worked. Um, yeah, it's a, yeah. At the moment, that those are my two main sort of um, themes for videos on the channel. My two specialist areas are conlanging and speculative biology. But I do have plans in the not too distant future to merge them to some extent because I don't think this counts as spoilers. Um, the final episode of Alien Biospheres, which is coming out hopefully later this year or early next year, will be about the evolution of sapient life. And once we have that, that opens the door for alien conlangs. So look forward to that. Right, right. That's That's definitely interesting. Um, well, let's, let's, since this show is about conlanging, let's, let's talk a little bit about your conlangs. Um, I will say one thing, I have watched some of your conlangs showcases, and I definitely do like the way that you derive things historically, and I have especially, um, uh, something that has pique my interest is like the way that you have evolved writing systems um because you tend to do um I, you you tend to seem to like follow a historical through line and you're not necessarily focused on like the traditional categories of writing systems while you're making mm -hmm. it it seems like um, can you talk a little bit about what your approach to writing systems is, what your approach to conlanging is? Sure. Um, so, yes, I would say I'm pretty... Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the historical approach to conlanging. Um, it's, uh, I have not always been that way, but I just found that naturally I've gravitated towards that methodology as I went along. And um, so... With the writing systems, um, I have, let me think, I think I have five writing systems. Well, I've got, I've got five languages currently that I have not yet uh, destroyed or got tired of. Um, I've got two that are in desperate need of a revamp, and I've got several dozen that are just trash and are thoroughly abandoned. Um, So, and then within those, I have five different scripts uh, split among two different uh, script families. And I, let me think about the, the right order to describe these things in. So I suppose the earliest, the first script that I made, or at least the first idea for a script that I had 
um, just very early on in my conlanging days was, but this was long before I was into the, the method of uh, historically deriving things. I just had the idea that um, I still don't know if there's actually a name for this, but I wanted to have a script where the the whole syllable, including the onset, the nucleus, the coda, any other consonants or diphthongs or what have you, was all conveyed in a single glyph. I don't know if there's actually a name for mm -hmm. that, but there are languages like um, some of the Brahmic scripts um, do things like that. Um, well, I mean, uh, but so to clarify, you're not just talking about a syllabary, right? No. You're talking well, about something... It, perhaps it could be called a syllabary, but it also encodes additional, like, syllabary, as I understand it in the traditional sense, means, you know, consonant plus vowel within a single character. But this would be complex onset and potential, like, complex coda and complex, yeah, 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 yeah. if there's a diphthong, all of that would just be expressed within a single character. Mm -hmm. And I don't know of, uh, like I said, there are, I think there are some Brahmic scripts that are capable of indicating you no know, consonant clusters within a single syllable, but I don't know of any that do it like particularly robustly. Um, I, I suppose Hangul kind of mm -hmm. does that, because it arranges everything in the syllable blocks. Um, yeah, it's, well, Hangul is... Is it's an alphabet, but arranges things into it's an alphabet blocks, with a very right? strange so... direction. <laughs> yes, but um, yeah, I, I I get what you're talking about. Um, so, like, so you're talking about you wanted to encode everything into in a syllable into one one glyph space. Then, how did you go about? Getting to that point. Yeah, so I tried at least five or six times to make the idea work in a non-historical fashion. I just had like a, a, a table on my computer. This is what the consonant glyph looks like. This is what the vowel diacritic looks like. This is what the coda thing looks like. And I tried so many times to make it work in any kind of favorable way. And it just, it never felt right. It just, it didn't, the, it was so hard to get it where the, the consonant glyphs and the diacritics felt like they actually belonged together in the same script and it would work for one glyph but not for another, and it was it was very frustrating. So at some point, I just decided that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right, and that meant going back and right. establishing a proto-system. Um, and this was at around the time when I was first properly getting into historical conlanging. So I basically decided to try and contrive some historical explanation of how the script came to be the way it is. And um, that was, the way I did it is essentially I said that the earliest version of this script was actually used by a different culture and a different language. And uh, for one thing, the earliest version of the script was a, a syllabary in the style of um, Sumerian cuneiform in the sense that there were glyphs for both mm -hmm. consonant vowel sequences and vowel consonant sequences. So if you wanted to write a CVC syllable, you would put the CV syllable and immediately follow it by the VC syllable. And the fact that the vowel characters overlap, you just know that you're supposed to read that as a single syllable. Um, 
I basically just copied that, except I also decided that they, um, instead of just having it linearly, they just smushed the onset and the coda together into one thing, um, just for stylization. Um, so that took care of the combining the onset and coda into the same glyph, but then I had to think of how I wanted to handle the vowel diacritics, because at this point all I have is a very unwieldy syllabary. And so I basically um, resorted to, again, kind of like what happened with Hangul, where uh, in Korean they were using the Chinese characters for a, a pretty long time. I can't actually remember. I mean, Hanja is still around, right? Like, Yeah, well, they, they have to learn it. Um, Korean names are based on Hanja, mm -hmm. I think. And uh, they, like still have to learn it. It's used for ceremonial purposes, but for the most part, Hangul is what they yeah, use. Yeah, I, I don't speak Korean. I'm not very good at Korean, but I, as I understand it, <laughs> Chinese characters are not particularly well-suited for Korean, so at some point, like, Emperor Sejong just said, okay, we really need to make something that works better for our purposes. And so I basically pulled the same thing in this language where... Um, the script got borrowed into this different culture. They decided that this was completely not fit for their purposes at all, and that they were going to have to revamp it. And basically the way they revamped it was by ignoring whatever the vowel in the uh, syllable character was. Because by the way, by the time they borrowed this script, it was over a thousand years old and the writing system, the, the spelling system was atrocious at this point. So um, they... Right said, okay, we'll just ignore what the vowel is and we'll just write our own little diacritic on top to indicate what the vowel is. And once that happened, you now have the three pieces. You've got the onset, the coda, and uh, the vowel somewhere around as a diacritic. So that was how it all sort of solidified. Basically, I just pulled every trick in the book that I could think of to, to get the system to work the way I wanted to. Well, that's, that's really... Yeah, that's really interesting hearing your your thought process on that and i'm sure you have plenty of this in in your videos and stuff but it's it's interesting to go through it like that because like i think a very often conlangers are like going to make the choice of i'm going to make an alphabet i'm going to make an abjad i'm going to make an abgida and like it's not evolved that way or it's not thought of as an evolving thing but the way that you know every writing system that exists looks right now has those kinds of historical influences mm -hmm. that are are very relevant so i thought it was it was interesting to hear about mm -hmm. that in your videos i would um, say that my Biggest I, piece, sorry, um, I was just going to say, I think my biggest piece of advice yeah, to anyone uh, who wants to make a sort of naturalistic writing system is to intentionally have it go through uh, some kind of transition from point A to point B, whether it's a switch in the type of writing system, as in like from an abjad to an alphabet to an abugida, what have you, or if it's just as simple as changing the... Um, the instrument and the medium just because in so doing there will inevitably some be some quirks that have picked up along the way that will make it more distinct than just being 
an alphabet or an abjad, it will necessarily have some kind of interesting thing that sets it apart and makes it its own unique thing. Like that's what happened with the my other mm -hmm. script family is that I just had the idea of trying to evolve an alphabet from an abjad um, in a kind of a similar way to how the um, the Greek alphabet came from Phoenician, and they just sort of they despaired at the lack of separate vowel characters and so they just thought oh we'll reuse some of these consonant symbols that we don't need and just pretend that they're vowels um <laughs> and i kind of did a similar thing but um along the way just because the way that language happened to work where uh, they had purely open syllables at this point um and so there has to be a vowel there they can't not be a vowel there because consonant clusters aren't allowed so they just decided, okay, if there isn't a vowel written there, we'll just assume that there's an A there. There's just an R vowel. And so what you ended up with is, again, I'm not actually sure if there's a special name for this particular type of system, but it's, depending on how you look at it, it's either an alphabet with an inherent vowel, or it's an abugida that has separate vowel characters, if you see what I mean. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yeah. Yeah, and that's 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 the thing that I liked when I was looking at your writing systems particularly is that they are sort of in between the standard classifications which you know if you look at it I don't know that anything is purely an alphabet, hmm. purely a syllabary, purely an abugida. Yeah. Right? Uh, just if you you start looking at examples and you see like okay well Japanese has these two syllabaries but the encoder is a separate character mm. and it's you can say okay well it's sort of like a moraic thing but it's still it's still something a little bit different maybe some more recent more deliberately derived scripts will be more like a, a pure instantiation mm -hmm. of something, but like even in English, sometimes we use the letter X mm -hmm. as a syllabic glyph, right? As a syllabic glyph. We, well, I mean, syllabic or maybe logographic or maybe mm -hmm. I don't even know. Like what 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 is it when you say X-ray? And you spell it X R A Y. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's or like um, the road signs where it says uh, truck X ing, like truck crossing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, then it's it's sort of being used as a logogram. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, but the there's there's always these sort of cross cross purposes cross ways and some systems are more of one category than others but they are generally you know going to be interesting and going to have their unique mm. features so it's it's interesting that you end up with these sort of in between scripts um the uh Okay. So getting back into like 
what you're doing right now. So you say you are planning to talk about the development of sapient creatures, Mm -hmm. which could lead into constructing alien languages. And that's sort of in the future. Are there specific plans you want to share about that or any other particular plans about the the channel that you're interested in sharing? Um, So um, to be honest, a lot of the stuff I have planned for after Alien Biosphere is finally over is still very tentative. And as for the the alien languages thing specifically, um, I don't exactly know how I'm going to proceed with that because there's multiple aspects to that i mean i have done some non-human conlanging before but really not very much um i had a couple of sketch languages for um creatures that are essentially human at least as far as the vocal tract is concerned with you know things like elves and dwarves and things that if there's Mm. any difference in the vocal organs at all that can just be hand waved away um and i did have one language a long time ago for a um species of sort of reptilian or specifically crocodilian humanoids um and that was my only real attempt to make something like distinctly non-human like i actually thought about how the phonology would be different um and it didn't really amount to all that much. Like I, I said no, no labials because they don't have lips. Um, that's kind of obvious. But right. um, also, I just had this idea that the um, so so crocodiles have a uh, a special powerful valve in their throat that closes when they go underwater to stop the water from flooding their airways. Uh, and so I thought, oh, that could maybe be like a point of articulation. Um, and so I added right. this sound series that I called the, the pseudo palatal series. Um, but in the end, I realized that didn't really affect anything because I can't pronounce it. Like humans in general can't pronounce it. And right. I just sort of said that it could be approximated with uvular sounds if humans were trying to try to speak it. And I don't know, it was just sort of a, a, a footnote in the grammar that didn't really come up very much. So I wasn't really very satisfied with that, but for this project, for, for Alien Biospheres, we have a very distinctly non-human or even non-vertebrate sort of setup because their respiratory systems work completely differently. So I have some very vague ideas mm-hmm. for phonological stuff, right. but very vague. Um, and as for the grammar and like the syntax and pragmatics, I have absolutely no idea at this point because... I don't know how to factor in yeah. alien psychology into neurolinguistics. That that's a bit much for me at the moment. Well, I mean, that's that's the big question because we I don't know if we can actually determine how a different brain structure would build that language mm-hmm. differently. We can do stuff like phonology because like the bodies are different. Are is this are is this going to be an like an oral language? Are they going to? I think so. Or because, mm-hmm. yeah, because that's that's also a different challenge. Because you could 
you can figure out the shape of the air tract and all of the articulators, but simulating sounds mm. from an alien biology, I think, is a lot more difficult than doing what a lot of people do, which is an alien sign language, yeah. where you just know what have to know what the visible articulators look like, right? And generally how the muscles could move. Mm -hmm. Whereas like even modeling human speech is yeah. difficult. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, again, I really don't know how exactly I'm going to tackle it at this point, but we'll see. I doubt it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to flesh it out in, I'm not going to have like a world of alien conlangs probably that I think that's a little bit too much, just too much in general, but We'll we'll at right, least touch right, on right. things and, and see how they go. Yeah. Well, you you started this for Dungeons and Dragons games. Do you, you use your languages in in role playing games still? Um, no. I don't play nearly as often as I used to. For one thing, but it's um, mm -hmm. not really like. I'm trying to think of any decent examples, but for the most part, it just doesn't really come up. Um, I might, you know, mm -hmm. almost as an Easter egg, if I need some sort of um, incantation or some sort of, you know, ancient message in some mysterious language written, I might, you know, transcribe it in one of my languages, but it's never a very um, integral part of the, uh, of the story or the, the game, usually. Right, right. That that makes sense. It's it's difficult unless you have a whole group that is interested in that kind mm. of thing to like actually the so all of the languages that I've made that I have, I'm still um that I haven't destroyed yet um with the exception of the most recent one um they all do exist in the same con world. Um, and it's the same con world that I, um, in which I was running games when I first had the idea to make a conlang, um, although it's changed a lot. Um, so theoretically, you know, if I ever ran a game again in that setting, all the languages would be there and be present, and the players could interact with them. Um, I'm just not really sure what the best way of doing it would be. But I think believe you have an episode about that on, mm -hmm. on this very podcast. So, yeah, I I, I do, um, and I have also like had the idea of like if I restarted my streams that I would um, start with a project to make my own versions of like all of the exotic languages, the the spellcasting languages for D anD. Mm. So Draconic, Sylvan, uh, Celestial, Infernal, and is there another Abyssal? one? Abyssal? I mean, there's there's tons of things. Abyssal? What? Is that one? Abyssal? Yeah. yeah. I don't know what... Yeah. I don't know what's, what's the difference. Is Abyssal like the old ones, or is that primordial? Well, it's been a while. I think Abyssal is for demons. And, Okay. 
I think I would start with the uh, the the draconic because it's sort of a it's in the like the prime material plane mm-hmm. that the dragons live, so they are sort of more of a naturalistic yeah. entity. But then you could you could go out and go in wild directions with all of the outsiders. But I don't know. It, it, it's it's a mm-hmm. thought. Uh, would you be interested in using something like that in your games, or would you prefer to actually make it yourself? <laughs> um, I was actually yeah. uh, didn't. Um... I could be completely confabulating this, but I think in one of the D&D books, they did actually have a brief section on draconic grammar. They probably have it. They probably have something, but, like, I wouldn't even want to look yeah, at it. Yeah, it's, it's probably not much. <laughs> I would just, like... I seem to remember yeah, coming I would, across I would, that I would, I would just, just being quite intrigued that they decided to make note of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be it would be something interesting to make. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, it would be, you know, and uh, maybe you know, if we could get people together, then we could do like a one of those D and D streams, Ooh. and I could use it. But <laughs> that would be fun. I would uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but so. It's it's interesting. So your YouTube channel taking off is sort of like an accident, then. Very much so. It's just sort of, yeah. But in the in the same way, I I think it's really valuable that that happened because you are. Uh, I think when we were talk when I was talking to David and Jesse, um, in an earlier in in the first video episode. You know, they were talking about like there's a whole bunch of people getting interested in conlanging because of YouTube, and it's drawing in more people. So it it is very a very interesting and very valuable position that you're put in. <laughs> I hope that's not a lot of um, pressure. Yeah, sometimes thinking about it, it's um um. I don't, yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm very happy that things have, ha- have happened the way they have. I never would have thought this would be a possibility at any point. Um, yeah, I hope I don't manage to screw things up, I guess. <laughs> I don't think you will. Um, yeah. So, and an, another thing in your channel that I think is really interesting is I was watching the playlist of your, what is it called? The Conlang a case study, the, yeah, the Conlang case mm-hmm. study where you are going through your process, which is, it's sort of the same sort of deal that David's doing with Langtime studio and, and stuff like that. Was that, you talked about how you had started when people were asking David about putting his process out there 
and and recording it is was that also the impetus for doing that kind of thing um so as far as i remember for that um it was actually um so as i say all of my other conlangs exist in the same con world uh but then i have this mm-hmm. um a poorly formed idea for another potential project that I might work on at some point. And so I sort of preemptively decided I'll probably need a conlang for that one too. So I mm-hmm. thought, I suppose someone might be interested if I were to record my process. And so I just kind of went for it. I was a little bit um, hesitant to upload it at first because it feels very sort of, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure I would be interested in watching it if I could. <laughs> it's just sort of me sitting and just staring at the wall and trying to think about things for like a couple of hours. But the people apparently like it, and um, yeah, it's good for me because I get um, I, it's a, a form of multitasking because I can get some conlanging work and some YouTube work done at the same time. Um, yeah, so. Um, it's proceeding quite well, I think. Um, and I'll carry on doing it until ultimately the language is complete or as complete as a conlang can be. Um, and then I will turn that into a proper uh, conlang showcase like I've done with all of my other languages. And after that point, I guess I'll find another conlang to start making and the cycle will begin again. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is very interesting, and I I suggest people check it out. Um, it is like you say that you're staring at a wall trying to figure things out, but there's there's quite a bit of commentary involved, and it is interesting to see you go back and forth on choices sometimes, yeah. and sort of it's not it's not an entirely a linear process getting getting everything out there and done um and you know i think more people sharing how they do things is beneficial because there's a wide variety of of things that people do um there and uh there ha- doesn't have to be just one way to do this mm-hmm. um well i think i have asked most of the questions that I think I've asked all the questions that I was particularly interested in, but is there any other, are there any other things that you particularly want to share in terms of advice, in terms of plans for the future, in terms of like anything that you want to be putting out there? Um, I suppose my, my sort of main piece of advice i i think the i think the two most important things in conlanging in my experience is um number one um have a clear idea of what your goals are from the beginning because the conlanging and like any art form really is inherently subjective and so the only real uh objective criteria for assessing whether a conlang is good or not is comparing it to its goal. So 
if you establish from the very beginning that the goal of the language is naturalism, then the whether or not it's naturalistic becomes the only way of assessing whether it's good or bad, if you see what I mean. So right. that goal can change if you allow it to, but that was among many, many other things. That was one of the things that went wrong with my first language because I simultaneously, I kept going back and forth between wanting it to be a naturalistic language that was spoken by a culture of people, but also for it to be like a perfectly logical, philosophical language that describes the universe in as precise a way as possible. And those are two mutually incompatible things. And so that was as I say, one of the many, many reasons why it fell apart. Um, so, yes, um, keep your goals in mind. And the other one is to um, understand that it's a learning process um, and that you will get better if you keep doing it. Um, and if you're like me, then anything that you've made that's older than, like, six months, you will cringe in terror and be incredibly embarrassed by, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, as long as you just uh, keep on doing it, you will keep on improving. Um, yeah, I think that that's what I have to say in terms of advice. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I will actually, before we go, cover one more thing. Because, so, you said several times that you have Conlang's in the past that you have quote unquote destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, what is your philosophy on that? Why, why is, why do you do that? Because like in the past I have taken early languages and like revised them or I just did sort of abandoned them and, and let them be. I don't know if I have destroyed them. Uh, David Peterson famously has all of his old early really terrible languages still up on his website. So what, why do you destroy them and how, what does that mean that you destroy them? Um, so yeah, the manner of destruction kind of depends on exactly how I, in, in some cases it is just, yeah, I just let them fester on my computer and just never think or touch them again. And in other cases I do just straight up delete them because I just can't stand the sight of them. Um, in some cases, it's just because, yeah, I just don't like them. But in other cases, it's because the ideas, the, the sort of, to use a biology term, the niche that that um, Conlang and that culture of speakers uh, had in the world as I conceptualized it no longer made sense or no longer exists. Um, and so even if I were to go back and revive it, there wouldn't really be a place in the world for it to exist in in the same way um i'm trying to think of a specific example but um i i i don't know if other people do this but i do this quite a lot where i kind of like to i like to make prestige languages like i, I like to give languages a certain sort of um um stereotype isn't the right word but um like people within this con world, like uh, Nakashi is supposed to be uh, the language of logic and science and progress. And, you know, every, you know, educated person, all the stuffy academics, they all know how to speak Nakashi because that's just what the educated person does. Whereas Okalawak is the language of like 
art and poetry and expression, etc. Um, but there have just been several points where I've had ideas for specific languages that fill, yeah, certain cultural vibes or that, that for whatever reason they just the concept no longer makes sense with how everything else is playing out so at that point I just deem okay there's no point in because all of the languages that I still have I have revamped and revised five or six times I continuously go back and change things about them but mm -hmm. at some point that just becomes just impractical so I just ditch them <laughs> okay okay I I didn't know if you had if you actually like deleted them from your stuff and destroyed your notes or you just mm -hmm. you just left them. My, alone. my first language but, uh, I have that's, well and truly. That's deleted. interesting. Oh, okay. Um it is it is interesting that idea that you had a niche for the language in the world and then that niche got filled by something else or was no longer needed for something. And then that led to abandonment. That's not really, I suppose for me, it has not really been a thing that came up because I have in the past, I have taken a conlang that was meant for one world and transplanted it into another world, mm -hmm. which is um I don't know if it would necessarily work in all cases because you know sometimes it's dependent on all the other languages in the world in this these particular cases it sorted itself out but um it's interesting to me to to say like oh um it's it seems like a very you know very much the advice of kill your darlings mm -hmm. for writing where if something doesn't fit you throw out the work that you did or at least you know put it put it somewhere else and don't actually use it in the original mm -hmm. work right i am uh, curious when you say transplant it into this other world that it wasn't originally intended for um is that because the old world no longer exists or is it still do you still maintain the old world but you just move this language from one to the other um that's a good question um it's i don't know if i would say the old world doesn't exist it was i was not working on that world anymore and the place where i left it it probably didn't really like fit it it may not have actually fit so i will tell you this has happened to me twice um so Ayuruyo started out as sort of spirits that were worshipped by the hala who lived on a moon of a gas giant and the idea was the Ayuruyo lived on the gas giant somehow right but I started conceiving of that world a bit further away from fantasy and more into science fiction tropes and kind of gave up on the idea of like literally existing spirits in that world and then moved that into a world that had humans in it that I was writing a novel hmm. about. Um, 
And then that world had the earlier version of Istatiki, which was uh, Pahran, I called it. And that, you know, it could have stayed in that world, but the novel I was writing for that world, I kind of abandoned. And then I didn't want to give up Istatiki, so I was continued developing it for a while. I still never completely finished all the sections of the grammar that I was writing, but um, I stopped that and I have considered moving Istatiki over into another world. Um, I will say that in all these cases, I had not really developed a whole ecology of languages around these that was influencing each other. So if you have done that, then it's going to be harder to transplant a language from one world mm -hmm. to another, right? Uh, but since I hadn't done that, it was a thing of I, I have this thing. I could, I could probably use this or descendant of it to get names for this other work, right? So, yeah, that was the, the general mm -hmm. idea. <laughs> I see. Um, but is, it is interesting to, to hear that you sort of have old conlangs that you just, I mean, we all have abandoned projects before, right? Um, but the, the particular language you use of saying you destroyed them is, was evocative and I was interested mm -hmm. in exploring that. Um, all right. Well, I think we can wrap up this episode. Any final thoughts before we go? Um, um, let me think. Anything else to say? Um, I will say, actually, one, one other minor thing that occurred to me while we were talking about writing systems that I didn't vocalize. Um, it's something that I think uh, doesn't get... Uh, taken into account as much as it possibly should uh, is that so writing as a concept was only independently developed something like a dozen times in the real world and mm -hmm. even among those only like four or five of them really took off and basically every script in the world can be traced back to one of those four or five um but I do see, and I have been guilty of this myself in the past, um, I see a lot of projects where it's like every single uh, language or every single language family has its own unique script that is completely independent of all the other scripts in the world. And there's, it's entirely possible you right. could say that there is some you know, ancestry there that you're just not fleshing out, which is fine. But it's... So, like, um, when I was talking earlier about the development of, like, the Nakashi script and the Okalawak script is, like, keeping in mind that ancestry of, you know, what were the sort of proto-systems that gave rise to all of these other writing systems, trying to keep that in mind, especially if you have some knowledge or understanding of how those proto-systems worked, that can be really informative as to how, again, you get from point A to point B in a way that gives you um, fun quirks that violate the typical uh, alphabet, Avagita, Avjad, etc. Just gives you more 
fun things to play around mm-hmm. with. Yeah, it is. It is very. It is a very good point because, uh, like, and if we look at just scripts that, like, extant scripts that evolved naturally, uh, and that that actually brings it down to like just two origins because. Most of the scripts that are still in use are traced back to ancient Egyptian. <laughs> and then you have uh, Chinese, which has, has remained in use and also um, spread to Japan and have the, the kana. But like... Yeah, it's really those two. There's no... Yeah. What? Yeah, it's really those two are the, the two like big ones. Cuneiform is gone like entirely. Uh uh the Mesoamerican glyphs that probably are still used for ceremonial purposes somewhere. Um and like what else? We don't even know if Kipu was entire was mm-hmm. writing before Spanish contact or not. Uh, the Indus Valley script, we don't know like what exactly happened to that. Yeah, so so it is interesting that uh, that you could get away with like just one or two origins of writing and fill out your entire world yeah. that way. Uh, whereas a lot of conlingers, I don't know, feel a need to just like have everybody do their own completely independent isolate writing system. And uh, I mean, there's, there's reasons that that can then feel good and it can be nice stylistically, but there's also like real world reasons why that actually happened mm-hmm. and the way that why, why, you know, having just a few origins of writing is what ended up yeah. happening. <laughs> you know, it's uh, the writing arises in specific social circumstances. But anyway, it's it's been great talking to you, and uh, thank you for all of this information, and uh, I wish you the best of luck on your YouTube career continuing forward. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, and hope you can you can develop new projects and and uh continue to be someone to attract new people to the conlanging hobby. Thank you. Also, uh, I'll just so, throw in as well that this this podcast was instrumental in um getting me comfortable with a lot of the the nuts and bolts of conlanging. So thank you very much for providing that that yeah, resource. Yeah. It's been it's been invaluable. Mm-hmm. Well, I we try. I try. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, thank you for coming on. And to everyone listening or watching, uh, I'm going to say happy conling. Special thanks goes to our patrons, Mintaka, Connor Stewart Rowe, Kenan Kigunda, Viren Patrick, Graham Hill, K. Jaylinda Surich. Jesse. Sylvia Sotomayor. 
Jeremiah, Alexis Hugelman, Soten, Nicholas Norblad, Eloivar Jana Mentuleum, Sigourney Hunter, Jack Keynes, Braca Grunk, Grammar Antifa. Conlangery's theme music is by Null Device. Conlangery is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 4.0 International License. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast. Ah. <laughs>